All right, this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 and 4. So if you want to turn there, you can. Um, and uh, you know, if you want to flip there. Today we're going to be wrapping up, believe it or not, our series called Disciple. Um, and, and, you know, this is the ninth week. This is the longest series that I've ever preached in my life. But I really believe this series will be, honestly, as we go on into, into history, or not history, but go into the future, you know, this will be one of the most important series our, our church will ever preach or ever, ever go through together because I believe that knowing and understanding discipleship is going to be foundational to everything else we do. Everything. You know, think about it this way. I mean, if we have a thriving kids and a student ministry, but we aren't discipling them and teaching them how to make disciples, guess what? We're failing. We're not, we're not, we're just doing church. If we have, you know, well, let me go back for a second. Discipling the kids starts in the home, first of all. It starts in the home with you guys discipling your children. And I want to encourage you to disciple your kids, man. Like, don't depend on the church to do that. You know, if, we're, if we have amazing worship services and worship experiences, which we obviously do, but no one in attendance knows how to make disciples, we're failing, right? If we have awesome missions and outreach projects and all these things, but we aren't discipling the people that we're reaching out to, and we're actually hurting them more than we're helping them, because what, we do, what we're doing is we're going into these places with, the, with access to eternal life, and we're not giving it to them. We're giving them temporary relief. And my heart this morning is that we would be a church that knows how to make disciples and is, and is passionate about making disciples. And for the last eight weeks, what I've taught you and what the Bible has taught you, what we've talked together about has been a definition that you've heard so many times by now that you should, it should be resonating in your mind. You should be able to quote it by now because you've heard it a thousand times, it seems like. And what, what this should be, look like is in your life, you should start seeing some sort of reflection of God trying to work in your heart like, and be asking the question, God, am I, is this me? Is this my life? Is, it, is this what I'm looking like as a disciple? And what we said is a connection. We believe a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, someone's being transformed by Jesus, their heart is changing, God is moving in their life, and someone who has joined Jesus on their mission, someone who has stepped into the arena with Jesus and says, Jesus, I love you. I'm going to follow you. Guess what? Now, whatever you want, whatever your heart is, that's what my heart's for too. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus as a disciple. And what we've decided over these last eight weeks is that the description of a disciple is going to play itself out into three different areas that, that we've kind of narrowed it down to. There's probably more, but these are the three that I look at as probably being the most important. is a servant, a disciple is a servant, a disciple is a worshiper, and a, a disciple is a missionary. And we talked about all those things. And then last week we talked about it's impossible to make a disciple unless your heart is, is, is totally given to Christ and you treasure Christ above all things. It was, we, we, we clarified that last week. But this week, the last week, and this is probably one of the most important weeks, I feel like, is what God has been putting on my heart. And I'll, I want to be transparent here in a second. Is that what he's been putting on my heart this week when it comes to the heart of a disciple is the word joy. 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 And, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. This is something that I struggle with personally. This is something that I struggle with in my heart of hearts. And, and it's, it's, it's not okay if the only time I experience joy is when I'm worshiping. It's not okay if the only time I experience worship or joy is when I step into a church. The heart of God inside of a man produces joy in that man. The heart of God, the heart of God that, that, that produces an understanding of the gospel produces joy in that man. And, you know, what I want you to hear this morning is I believe as, as we follow Jesus, as he, re he reveals himself more and more and more to you guys and to us as a church, I think what he does is he draws us closer. He draws us closer, draws us in. 
and he begins to transform our hearts like we just talked about. And as he's transforming that, what I, what I begin to see in my personal life is how good he is. And so we say, he's coming after us. God didn't have to step down from heaven and come after us. He didn't have to do that. But I thank God he did. And if your heart's numb to that this morning, wake up. Wake up to it because it's real and it's true. He's good and he loves you and that creates pure joy inside of us because joy should be the greatest defining factor of every disciple of Jesus. No matter what persecution you're facing, no matter what trial you're facing, no matter what temptation you're wrestling with, joy should be the greatest defining factor in your heart because guess what? As you're being joyful to the world and people are seeing how joyful you are in, in the midst of your circumstances, despite your circumstances, that's what becomes attractive to people to Jesus because they see your joy in despite of what you're going through. Because they know that something different is about, is there's, there's something different about you and what that thing is different that your eyes are looking to heaven and not to earth. That's where, that's where it's about and that's what it is. And I want, you're going to hear this a few times this morning. You can write it down now or the other three times you hear it. But you're going to hear this. Uh, your ability, your ability to have joy in all things, your ability to have joy in all things is the measure of how much you understand and believe the gospel. Your ability to have joy in all things is the measure of how much you understand and believe the gospel. And one of the greatest problems the church today faces is what it, what it looks like is its members have adapted to, to the worldly mindset when it comes to life, right? We've adapted ourselves to this worldly mindset of how we do life. In large part, the only thing that separates us as the church from the world is our church attendance on Sunday mornings. Like you go to a workplace and you see somebody, you, it's hard to decipher who's, who's a Christian or who's a disciple and who's not, and it shouldn't be that way. And according to Scripture, I see there's a, there's a very big difference. And, and I think about my own life where I worry about trivial things that don't really matter. I mean, can you think about the things that you were losing sleep of two years ago? Can you remember those things? No, probably not. You might be able to, but I doubt it. I, I can't. We try to control. We try to fight. We try, to, we try to fight for that comfort instead of allowing God to use those circumstances that we're, we're uncomfortable in to, to further and deepen our level of sanctification. We fight against it. We throw money at it and make it more comfortable. We, we try to get in this other place. To, we always try to lean towards comfort and away from discomfort when God's trying to use those things to pull us towards him and make us more like him and pull us away from the world. And what it's done in, and what it's done in the church, it's drained the church of joy. It's drained the church of joy because what we're doing is we're trying to live in two worlds. We're trying to live like the world, and we're trying to live like Christ. And we can't do both. And what happens is it's just ripping the joy out of our hearts because we're over here feeling some joy, and we're over here trying to fit in, and it just doesn't work out. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some, cer there are some certain denominations and certain churches who have, who have a healthy worldview and understand what the gospel means for them, and they possess a joy that overflows into the communities. I'm hoping that we're one of those. I think we're working towards that way. But I think what brought this on me this morning, I'll be honest with you, and this is a transparent moment, and it's just kind of a, a gut check of where we are as a church right now. Um, and don't get me wrong, this is normal for a church plant, but at the beginning of this week, we were in staff meeting, and I heard some, probably the most heartbreaking news I think I've ever received since I've been pastoring. Uh, it's not long, but it, you know, it's still long. Okay, so um, last week, we invited the first through fifth grade kids. Do you remember that? They were in the back. They were, they were fired up, and so, um, you know, they were, they were in worship with us. It's something, we will, we're going to do this more often, probably once a month or so, to include them in corporate worship so they can see what church looks like. They can see what the body looks like worshiping together and, and, and hearing Scripture together and, and just being here together. And 
I want to tell you right now is every kid in this room around you is just as much a part of this church as you are. You hear that? Like they're just as much an integral part of that, this church as you because they, we're raising the next generation of, of the disciple makers in those rooms. That's why we don't go and babysit your kids. We teach your kids scripture. We, we help your kids memorize scripture. We're teaching your kids how to share scripture and love on people because we believe that when they get to this place, they're, they're going to be fired up for the kingdom and be going out and making disciples of all nations. But what I heard broke my heart and made me question myself. Am I preaching wrong? Am I, am I not conveying the message right? Now? But what happened was a few kids came up to the leaders as they were getting ready to come over here last week, come into the service, and what they said, they said, we don't want to go to big worship because we can't dance. And I was like, golly, man. Like I said, that's what they do in kids' worship. They have dance, they, they hang out, they, they, they just love the worship. Let me say that again. Kids didn't want to come to big worship last week because they couldn't dance like they do in their own worship time. And I started thinking about that. At first, I was like, yeah, they're just kids. You know, that's what they do in kids. I'm like, no, that's not right. God started convicting me. I was like, that's not right. And so something's wrong about that, I think, you know? Have we become too dignified in our worship before the Lord? You think about David, whenever he danced before the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant was coming into the city. And I'm not saying we need to come in here and dance in the That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying this morning is, where is our joy in our worship of the Lord? Has our joy become, you know, pushed down because of our, our fear of man? You know, have we become too dignified in the presence of God? Because I asked the question a few weeks ago, do we have more fear of man in our time with God than we do have a reverence before God? And have we lost our joy or, or we, have we experienced, ever experienced joy in our relationship with God? Have you ever come before God and just experienced the overwhelming joy of his presence in your life? If you haven't, then I'm not sure that you've experienced the God of the Bible or Jesus of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that everyone here needs to be dancing. Okay, that's not what I'm saying before I get crazy. What I am saying is that following Jesus always leads us to a response of some sort. It's always a response. We re, Jesus requires us to respond to his presence. God, God's presence in this place, it, it, it requires us to respond. And, but one of the things that I see us get tripped up on a lot of times when it comes to this thing called joy is the difference between joy and happiness. Because I think a lot of people kind of correlate joy with happiness. Like, I'm not very happy. I must not be joyful. This ain't making me happy. I don't like this. this it's just always like, ah, we're not, we can't understand what joy is because joy and happiness are two very different things. You hear that? But you need to understand this as a disciple. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, joy and happiness are two different things. If you get them mixed up, you're going to be down a very confusing road. Well, our, our culture teaches us, if you go into the American culture, the American dream, it teaches us to do everything in our power to reach this place of happiness. By doing more, buying more, get promoted more, get more prestige, more wealth, more children, more possessions, more status. But the crazy thing is, these things that our culture is pushing on us, they don't possess the power to bring us any form of joy at all. None. And what it does is, is it puts us in this never-ending cycle of unmet expectations where we become skeptical and cynical and eventually we become so passive we become worthless for the kingdom of God and we become worthless for kingdom work because our eyes have been removed from Christ who is the source of our joy onto the things that we think are going to bring us joy. And it never works. It never works. And so we spend 30, 40, 50, 60 years trying to do things to find that joy. And all we're really looking for is happiness. The joy of the Lord is our strength, is what Nehemiah 8.10 says. 
The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so what Satan wants to do is he comes and steals, kills, and destroys. He wants to come steal your joy so he can kill your influence so he can destroy your life. Do you hear that? Whether we realize it or not, what we're doing in this place when these kids are coming in here, when these kids are watching you guys worship, when your kids are watching, whether you're holding your hands in worship, whether you got your hands in your pocket, whether you're bored, whether you're sitting down, whether you're dancing or whatever, we're setting a culture right now for how that next generation in our church is going to worship and how they're going to follow Jesus. They're watching you. They're watching me. They're watching us. We're setting a culture right now in this place, right now, for how the next generation will make disciples of all nations. That's, we're setting that culture now of how they're going, to be, they're going to be sent out. Do we have people in these rooms over here that are going to be missionaries? I hope so. I hope we send a hundred of our kids to be missionaries on foreign nations to see the gospel reach a place that was unreached. I hope we do. But let me tell you, this morning, happiness is emotionally driven while joy is a state of mind and an orientation of the heart. Joy is a state of mind that comes from knowing and loving Jesus and, and, an, and it's an orientation of the heart. My heart is set in this place. And it's a, it's a contentment and a confidence and a hope of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And my life is settled with the gospel. It's set. It's done. It's finished. So I can sit on that firm foundation of who Christ is and what he's done in my life. And I have joy knowing my future is set. That's what joy is. And this, and this is where we're going to begin today. I want to start from a place where we understand that to be effective in our faith or in discipleship, we must understand what joy is. Now, we must understand we must walk in joy every step of our way because without joy, without joy, we lose hope. Without hope, we become ineffective for the kingdom. Without joy, we lose influence. And without influence in the world, we, 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 we lose the, the, the ability to influence hope in someone else's life. Romans 15, 13. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 15, 13 says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying, may God fill you with joy and peace as you trust him, as you trust God, as you trust God more and more and more and more in your life, whether it be with your finances or your family or your job or your church or anything else in your life, as you trust Him more and more and more, what happens is joy and peace starts overflowing in your life. Because you know what? You start taking your hands off of control because you realize you can't control it anyway. And as you take your hands off of control, joy and peace start flowing in. And after that joy and peace starts flowing in, Hope comes because you start seeing the future as being brighter because you know that God is coming back one day to, to bring his church home through the power of the Holy Spirit. But let me tell you right now, Christians, what I've noticed in my life, I grew up in a Baptist church, you know, I, Christians, and it's sad to me, seem to be some of the most unjoyful people I know. But they have the most reason to be the most joyful. Does that make sense? You know, I, 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 the, the way we walk into church sometimes, you know, I'm like, do y'all see how your faces look? Like, whatever, guys, back at church, you know, we're doing a thing. There's always something wrong. There's always somebody to talk about. There's always an issue to deal with. Work stinks or my marriage is struggling. I'm, I'm always sick. I can't catch a break. My children don't act right. The guy, the red light cut me off on the way here. Uh, this didn't go my way. Even in church, even in this church sometimes maybe, I don't like this person. I don't agree with that guy. The pastor sucks. That, I'm, I, all these different things. All these different things. I, I, this person can't tell me about my sin. They can't judge me. I'm going to another church. 
You know, we can't practice a, we can't practice church discipline in today's churches because whenever you try to practice church discipline, people leave. Right? But listen, if the church would come together, find order in Scripture, and they would start functioning as the Scripture says we're supposed to function, you'd see a church come alive, you'd see joy overflow, you'd see peace and hope coming out of our doors into our communities and changing the environment around us. It'd be amazing. And it all starts with joy. Because someone who is overflowing with joy and hope has no time to complain because they're too busy following and praising Jesus. So my, 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 my advice for you today is I heard, I'm not sure where I heard it from, but it, it's, I don't know. But it says stop counting your problems and start counting your blessings. Stop counting your problems and start counting your blessings, what God's done in your life. And so today we're going to look in, uh, we're going to read Philippians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 17 and we'll go through verses 4 through 7. Um, four, chapter 4, verse 7. And so um, read with me here. It says this. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. You can see that today. But our, citizen, our citizenship, listen, this is a big butt right here. I told you I like big butts. This is a big butt right here. Listen, our citizenship is in heaven, right? That's awesome. If you're a Christian in here this morning, if you're a believer, if you've changed your, your address from earth to heaven, if you said you've gone from death to life, if you said, Jesus, I trust you, I trust you and only you for my salvation, guess what? Your citizenship's in heaven. That's awesome. That's great. Okay. I'm glad we're excited. And listen, and this is what he says. He says, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who's full of joy eagerly awaits. Have you ever eagerly wanted anything? I think about when I was seven years old waiting for Christmas. I didn't sleep. I was like, when's five o'clock? I'm going to wake my parents up and see what Santa brought me. I'm, I'm fired up about Christmas because I love Christmas still. Y'all know y'all do too. It's okay. Um, uh, it says, but by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We will be like him. First John says, we don't know what we'll be like, but we do know we'll be like him. That's good. That's a good thing. That's something to be joyful about, man. What, what can possibly come against that? Nothing. Let's move on. Verse four, therefore, because of all this, Brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Sintish, whatever her name is, to be, it's two women that are fighting, um, to be this, with the same mind in the Lord. This is some of that church discipline. Can you imagine if a pastor wrote something and said, hey, get along, and you actually got along? That'd be amazing. You know what I mean? Awesome. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of Christ, along with Clement and the rest of the, my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So my thing is, you think about all this stuff. Like you're, 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 he's rejoicing that there's citizenships in heaven. And then we, we read past stuff like this. Uh, you know, the, the, the two ladies and then Clement, he says, help them and, and come alongside of them because their names are in the book of life. And so my question today is like, how many times have we ever, if you're a Christian here, just rejoice that your name's in the book of life? 
Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you. I'm, my name's written in heaven. How many of us come against Satan when he comes against us and say, no, not today, bro. My name's written in heaven. I'm there. My name is in heaven. When I die, my place is in heaven. My citizenship's in heaven. That's where I'm at. That's, what I'm, that's, that's amazing. It goes on. Because of all this, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. For all of you English majors out there, what's that little excl exclamation point out behind rejoice? That means it was said with excitement. And so when Paul's sitting here writing this stuff, he's not like, well, how we do when we read our Bible sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Uh, let your gentleness be able to, oh, the Lord is near. That's not how he said it in this point. He said, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Because he's fired up about it. Because he believes it with his soul, man. He believes it. He says, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Underline the Lord is near. That's probably the most important four words in this passage. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts. That will right there is a promise. Will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So I want to play a little game. Are we okay with that? I need full participation. Are we in? Okay, we're in. All right, cool. Seriously, full participation. So I'm going to list out some scenarios right now, okay? Some scenarios. And I want you guys just to be thinking. You don't necessarily have to do anything except raise your hand. And after that, just be thinking about emotionally, like how you would feel in these moments, okay? Put yourselves in these moments and be like, eh. You know, how you would feel in those moments, okay? Um, your emotions, your thoughts, conversations with God, prayers, feelings, all those things. Okay, so how many people in here, in this room right now, have some sort of mortgage payment or a rent payment or some kind of anything. Raise your hands high. Oh, man, that's a lot of people. Me too. Uh, so how many people get depressed just thinking about how much you owe on that house or on that apartment? Or Right, yeah, yeah. I was I actually closed on a house this week, and uh, we actually sold our house, and the, guy, the lawyer was like, hey, don't look at all these numbers. Just sign here. I was like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Uh, <laughs> and so moving on, uh, how many people in here have student debt? I do. I have student debt. Who gets depressed about that? Because it always seems to go up, right? It's like, does it ever go down? I mean, good gosh, man. We got duped on that one big time. Okay. So, but let me tell you, what would happen in here, what would happen here this morning if I told you right now that our church has paid off your entire mortgage? <laughs> that's, the, that's the most excited I've seen in this church ever. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. Look, we paid off your entire mortgage. What about your student loan? We paid off all your loans, guys. You're good. Right, you're fired up. You know, you're free and you're clear. What would your action be? Joy. It just, it just rejoicing. Hallelujah, man. Thank you, Jesus. That, that burden's gone. Here's one. Here's a good one that's more serious. It might bring, I don't know. Um, what if you were diagnosed with some incurable disease? What if you had some sort of incurable disease that you could not be cured of or you were involved in some sort of accident where, or, you, or you've contracted some sort of virus that's left you immobile for the rest of your life? Or what if, you're, what if your child experienced this? What if, what if everything in your life just stopped because of something that you came in contact with that you couldn't control, right? What would your reaction be if I told you that, that right now we have a cure for all of that? have a cure for the disease, we have a cure for the immobility, we have a cure for all those things. I can provide you everything that you need, healing for your illness right now. What would your reaction be? How would you respond? In tears? 
of joy, in tears of rejoicing, in tears of just thank you, Jesus. I thought I was dead. I thought my life was over, but you've restored it. Right? What I want to point out in, in this today is what Paul is telling the Philippians. They're telling them to rejoice in the face of, like, incredible persecution. They were facing death. They were facing illness because they were in dungeons and they were, they were, they were having issues with their faith in Jesus because they were, they were struggling. But what I want to share with you right now is what Paul is saying is the cure for all of those things has been given in Jesus. Jesus has been, he's restored our bodies. He's restored our lives. Maybe not on this side of heaven, maybe so. But one day when you see Jesus, all things are going to be made new. All things are going to be made new. And that's why we rejoice. And that's why we're able to get on our knees and our faces and say, thank you, Jesus. But the reason that we don't is because we don't get it right now like we want it. And we doubt and we fight through it. But what Paul does here is Paul says, rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And what Paul is saying here, this is a, in the, written in the Bible in the context of a command. This is a command. But it doesn't sound like a command because it sounds too happy to be a command, right? We think of command as don't sleep with another man's wife, don't lie to this person, don't cheat, don't be greedy, don't uh, kill nobody, all that kind of stuff, right? Those are commands, right? No, rejoice in the Lord is a command. Remember what I said a minute ago. Your ability to have joy in all things is the measure of how much you understand and believe the gospel. Do you understand and do you believe the gospel? And this is where most of us have our issue. We declare we believe the gospel with our lips, right? Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. We, we, we can talk about it. We can memorize some scripture. We know John 3, 16 in three languages. We know all of these things, right? We know all of these things about scripture. But what our lives tell seem to be a different story sometimes. When, when troubles come, what do we do? We worry. We throw money at things. We, we fight for comfort instead of fighting and finding a lesson that God's trying to do in the season of struggle. We don't pray first. We we struggle first. We worry first. Prayer is our last resort. resort. Having the joy in the situation is our last resort. If you know, listen, if you know the treasure of the gospel, even when other parts of your life are going wrong, you aren't devastated. You aren't devastated. Even if you're faced with an incurable disease, you're not devastated. Even if you're left immobile, you're not devastated. Even if your child is hurting, you're not devastated because you know the truth of the gospel. And if you don't, if you are devastated, it means you just haven't been enlightened to the deeper things of the gospel. And that's why the Bible tells us to dig in, to know Christ, the hope of us, the hope of us, who he is. And what, you know, you start thinking about this, you know, what's, you start thinking about what, what makes us lack joy in the Lord. What makes us lack joy in the Lord? And let's get real for a second. Let's be real with each other, with yourself. Just think through this for a minute. What, what in your life has caused you to lack joy? You know, and I think you can probably gather those things together in one little situation, and, and, you, can, and you can probably put them in this little category as we haven't or we aren't completely trusting or being satisfied in Christ. You know what I mean? We aren't completely being satisfied in Christ with who he is, what he's done, and what he wants to do in my life, or we're not trusting him with where he's leading us and where we're going. So trusting and being satisfied, those two things. Those two things are the biggest enemies of the gospel, being trusting Jesus and being satisfied in Jesus. Those two things will lead us astray faster than anything in the world. What we're doing is we're looking for something else, 
something else. Jesus is good, man. He died for me. Hallelujah. We're going to celebrate Easter next week, but he's not good for me right now. He's not good for me right now. Right now, I need something else. Right now, I need, you know, $10,000 to pay this bill. Right now, I need a cure for cancer. Right now, I need this. I, I need this right now. Guys, what, what this does is it creates this, this thing in our minds, and what it does is it creates comparison, comparison, lack of contentment. Our, what, what our culture has done in us is what's called us to lack satisfaction in Jesus because we're always comparing ourselves to our neighbor. We're always comparing ourselves with, with the person who's in front of us that has a nicer car, the nicer house, or the most kids, or the kids who are acting better than my kids. You know, it doesn't take much for mine, but I'm just saying, I, I'm just kidding, my kids are awesome. But what it does is it destroys joy. It destroys joy and makes it impossible for you to experience joy. It's impossible for you to experience joy when you're always comparing yourself with somebody else. It's the great contentment killer is comparison. It will, it will destroy it. This tells me what we've forgotten. We've forgotten who Jesus is and what he's done, and we know how to recite the facts about him and what he's done, but we haven't remembered who he actually is. We don't have that personal relationship with him. Paul double downs on this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all situations, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And if you, if you ever read that again, like, there's verses or there's words in there that are very absolute. He says, rejoice, how often? Always. In the good times, in the bad times, in the boring times, in the frustrating times, always rejoice. Be joyful, always. Pray continually, without ceasing, never stopping. That means I'm praying after I'm done with my prayers. I'm walking to my car, thank you, Jesus. I'm just having that conversation with God constantly. You're always being connected with Jesus. You're just talking to him in your mind, just, just focusing on throughout the day. God, help me see the good in what you're trying to do. Father, help me, help me in my relationship with my wife. Help me to serve her better, to love her better. God, help me not to kill my boss today. Like just, just talking through things all throughout the day. Give thanks in all circumstances. Every circumstance you face, give thanks because what God's done through Jesus is way better than anything I'm going to experience here. The church's lack of joy, man, let me tell you what it's done. The, church of, the church's lack of joy is the very reason the world doesn't believe us when we say God is good. Listen, because people watch God's children. People watch God's children in this earth. They watch how they live. You're saying, I'm a Christian. On Facebook, you got religious views. Christian. But, you know, listen, you, you, you have all these people looking at you as a Christian when you're saying, I'm a Christian, when your life looks nothing like it. And when the world sees the children of God worrying and stressing over stupid stuff and are just unhappy all the time, my question is, why would they believe when we say we believe something that we don't act like we believe? You know what I mean? Like, that's the, that's the question. Why would they believe that we believe what we say we believe? We ain't, we're not joyful about who Jesus is. We, say, we, we talk about this great Savior, but has he saved us? Because you don't act like he saved you. you know, that's the question we should ask ourselves if we're lacking joy. You know, the better question is this, is why would they choose to believe something that we don't ever seem to believe? You know, I, I've heard it put this way before. Is, I mean, I've heard people talk about Christians this way. Like, you know, I, they say, come to Jesus. Live your, live your life like my life. And they say, no, thanks. I already have enough troubles, right? They're like, they're, they're, they see 
They don't see the joy and the happiness and the, and the peace that comes with Jesus in your life because you're still trying to live in those two worlds, being pulled back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So my question today is, have you given the world an accurate picture of Christ through the way that you've stewarded joy in your life? Have you stewarded joy well enough that people can see Christ in your life? And what picture are you giving the world about the family of God as you live? Are, are, are you giving them a good picture of that? This is one of my greatest the, the revelations this week in this scripture. The Philippians, in Philippians, Paul says a very important, he says something very important in, in chapter 4, verse 5. If you got it, can you flip back there on the screen for me? The very, the very last little sentence there is four words long. Let's say this together. Together, church says, the Lord is near. Okay, let's say the rest of it says together. Here we go. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. We'll get the rest of y'all next week. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Let that resonate in your heart of hearts and your soul. The reason we can rejoice in life and in trial is because Jesus is returning. Jesus is near. The Lord is near. The early church, what they were doing, they were eager for the Lord to return. It says, Lord, come today. Lord, come today. Lord, come today. Their joy was fueled by their hope that Jesus would return any minute. Any minute. Jesus, is it today? Is it now? Is it, is it now? What, where, are you coming back today? God, come back. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Because their joy was found in him. And what this, this mentality in large part has changed in our church, right? We, you know, I hear people say stuff like, I can't wait for Jesus to return, but I want to have kids first. I want to have grandkids first. I want to go visit this country, this place first. I want to live my life first before Jesus comes back. I want to do this first. And I want to tell you right now, and I've, I've experienced this in my own life, but I want to tell you, if that's your mindset, you, you, you're off base and you might be a little crazy. Because listen, when I understand, when I understood who God is and what he's done and how much he loves me, I want nothing more than to see Jesus' face right now. That's what I want to see. And what this shows me is that we don't really understand the gospel of the goodness of who God is in the large part in the Big C Church in America. And what I want to see is we've lost that awe and we've lost that wonder of the gospel and we lack a general understanding of the gospel. If we think kids, if we think grandkids, if we think a vacation can complete and can compete with the glory of God and of heaven, then we're delusional and we're confused according to Scripture. When you follow Christ and you understand the beauty of Christ and the immensity of God, the joy, the awe, and the wonder would be what characterized the lives of you and your children and our churches. And as I was studying this scripture this week, um, if you want to turn to Matthew 25 real quick, you can, um, because I doubt it's going to be on the screen. Um, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33. I was reading this, this week, and I was studying this week, and something hit me between the eyes really hard. Like someone punched me in the face, not literally, but spiritually. And I never really thought about the day that Jesus returns. Yeah, I think about it. I'm like, come back, Lord. Come back, Lord. Come back, Lord. But I never played that out in my head as a reality, right? I never like, he's coming back one day. Jesus is really coming back for his church. It says in Scripture all throughout. But I never played that out. What would that day be like? That's crazy. Think about that for a second, you know? I, I, but, but something that this... This is something that could happen today. It could happen now or now or now. It could happen today, okay? 
But listen, let, let me read this to you. This is, this, is a, this is a scripture in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 33. And what it's looking like is whenever Jesus comes back and he's going to separate the sheep and the goat, goats and all that stuff is the people who believe, the people who don't believe. And what I've learned from my trips to Africa is sheep and goats, when they're in a big herd together, they're hard to pick out. You do with that what you want. All right, here we go. 31 to 35. 33, sorry. It says this. When, when's a big word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And can you picture this scene for a second, please? Just picture it in your mind. God has given us the mind that can imagine and picture things, and can, we can look and see how this looks as we're reading this. And can you picture this scene for a second? When Jesus comes back, it's some verses of Scripture says all of his glory. All of God's glory. Think about that for a second. All of God's glory coming at one time. Not as an infant in a manger, no more of that. No, not as an infant or, or a human like he did last time. All of his glory if you want more context, go read Revelation 1. There's an encounter with John and Jesus. All of his glory was revealed. Probably not all of it because he couldn't handle it, but it was some of it. Then it says, after that, it says all of his angels are with him. And so I'm like, hey, how many, how many is that? That's, that's got to be a lot, right? Anyway, but I just want to share something. When I was reading this, nothing else in my life that I could think of in that moment was going to matter in that moment. You know what I mean? Not one thing that I could think of at that table. I was like, well, my wife, yeah, no. my kids, nope. Um, money, nope. Not that church, not at all. You know, nothing, nothing I could think of is going to matter whenever you see Jesus coming down with all his angels, all of his glory. You're going to be like, it's going to be just joy or terror, one or two. And so I started looking into this a little bit, and Jesus said all the angels would come back for the church, him and the church. If you look at Revelation 5, there's a scene where it says, and a little bit down in the, in the, in the, in the chapter, it says, there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels surrounding the throne praising Jesus. If anybody can do the quick math in here, I don't, I'll save your time. That's 100 million angels. 100 million angels. Okay, 100 million angels is a lot, okay? Uh, for, context, it's, for context, it's very unlikely that anybody in this room has seen 100 million of anything in your life. Maybe, see, maybe sand on the seashore, maybe, I don't know. But it's very unlikely that you've seen 100 million of anything in your life at all. It's very, very likely. Think about this. And back in 2 Samuel, I think it was, maybe first, I can't remember. But one angel, one angel killed 186,000 Assyrians who were coming against Israel. First Kings, I think it was. Uh, one angel killed 186,000 people. 100 million. Okay. All right, we're good? Try to picture this. Try to picture this for real, guys. Try to picture what's the sky going to look like. What is, the, what is 100 million angels in the sky going to look like? What is Jesus' glory going to look like? Because I promise you, Jesus' glory is going to, is the, the angel's glory is going to prepare, is going to be pale in comparison to what Jesus is going to look like in that moment. I'm telling you right now, think through this for a minute. Jesus and all of his angels, nothing else is going to matter in that moment. You are, are nothing in that moment. Everything you've done is nothing in that moment. The only thing that matters is Jesus in that moment. It's him and you in that moment. And the only thing that's going to matter is he Lord or not. That's going to be the question. Is he Lord or is he not? 
Because let me tell you what, you're going to bow a knee now or then. And this is what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. Look, rejoice, man, because you know this is going to happen at any second. And in the moment, because your name is written in the book of life, have you rejoiced in that your name is written in the book of life yet? Because you've, you've trusted that he's your savior, that he's died for you, that he's given your life, he's given you life, that you're able to follow him. Not just saying you follow, but actually following him like Paul says. He says rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. In Romans, he doubles down. He says, what can separate us from the love of Christ, or the love of God in Christ? Nothing can separate us. Nothing. Rejoice. Rejoice. Have joy. So, so church, remember this. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Have you grasped this? It's joy that shows our hearts, understand the brevity of life and the beauty of the gospel. That's what it shows. Joy shows that we get it. It's joy that shows that we're true disciples. It's joy that shows that we treasure Christ. Whenever anyone else in the world freaks out, you know, everybody else in the world that's not believers, not Christians, they freak out about politics, the economy, persecution, or anything else. We focus on Christ and we rejoice. We have joy because he's forgiven our sins. Last three things, really quick. There's three things that I want to point out for you about this scripture and then we're done. There's, there's three truths that I want to share with you. Number one is joy and worry never mix. Joy and worry, they never mix. They're like oil and water. Joy and worry never mix. Verse six in this chapter says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about, imagine if you walked out of this room today and never worried about anything else in the rest of your life. Can you imagine that for a second? You didn't worry about anything. Can you imagine what kind of person you'd be if you never worried about anything? Can you imagine what kind of effect you could have for the kingdom? How joyful would you be at the end of your life? Right? Think about that. Can you imagine how many people would like you or be drawn to you because you're not worrying about anything? And we can't rejoice and be joyful at the same time that we worry. And but what we've done in the church is we may worry normal, and actually normal, worry is a sin, and it needs to be repented of because it means we're not trusting God. It's, it's one of those sins that the church doesn't touch because everybody does it, so it's kind of one of those things we just don't touch or talk about. So we overlook it. Rejoice is a command. Rejoice points to the right view of God. And when we see the right view of God, worry falls away. Because we see the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has all things in his hands under control, including my life, my finances, and my family. And what the worry does is it points us to a life that we're not, points to an area of our life that we're not trusting God fully in. It does. So my, my heart for our church is that we wouldn't worry. Because we think worry is normal. And when we hear rejoice always as a command, what that does to us is we're like, yeah, right, no one can go through life without worrying. Like, y'all probably heard that just a second ago in your mind. You can't do that. That's, that's hard. But my question is, why don't we do that with other sins? You know, why don't we do that with other sins that we talk about? You know, God says, don't kill nobody. You're like, yeah, I don't think I can go through life without doing killing nobody. That might be hard, Lord. You know, we don't do that. But give it, give it to God. Give your worry to God. Give it away. Let joy overflow you. Cast your cares upon the Lord and leave them there and let him have it because it's stealing your joy and it's killing your influence for the kingdom. Worry will destroy your Christian walk, period, period. Number two, discipleship, discipleship without joy is ineffective and it's dangerous. Discipleship without joy is ineffective and it's dangerous. 
When you disciple someone, what you're doing is literally replicating yourself. You're replicating yourself. You're teaching someone to follow Christ as you follow Christ. If you're following Christ with a lack of joy, that person's going to be have follow Christ with a lack of joy, a lack of understanding for the gospel. It's dangerous and it's ineffective. Number three, this is the last point. When we treasure Christ, when we treasure Christ, the result is always joy. We were created to worship. Our hearts worship because our hearts were created to worship, but our hearts will only be satisfied when our hearts are directed toward the one they were created to worship, and that's Jesus. And last week we talked about how Christ is our greatest treasure in this life, and then it's impossible for, for, for us to follow him and make disciples without treasuring him. And this week I want to take it a little bit further and say if Christ isn't our greatest treasure, then it's impossible to experience true and lasting joy in our life. The key to your joy is always Jesus. Always Jesus. And I said it a few minutes ago, your ability to have joy in all things is a measure of how much you understand the gospel. And let me tell you what right now, is you want to know who the most joyless person in the world is. It's the person who claims a faith in Christ but reverts back to a works-based theology. i got to work my way into the kingdom. i got to work my way into the kingdom. Jesus is going to love me if I do this. The most joy, joyless person in the world is the person who claims a faith in Christ, but there's no evidence of that faith being worked out in their life. No fruit, not making disciples, not loving like Christ loves, no grace, always playing catch-up, always keeping the mask straight, trying to keep that mask on right. It's the person who claims a faith in Christ, but their passivity in their faith has created a huge doubt in their hearts about their own salvation. But what their pride has done is it won't let them get it right because they're supposed to be the Christian and everybody looks at them as the Christian. It makes their heart sick with worry and con condemnation and they're always dealing with doubt. And so my question for you this morning as we close, is your heart full of joy or is it full of doubt? Is it full of joy or is it full of condemnation? Where is your heart with the Lord this morning? Christian here this morning, have you lost your joy because of sin? Have you lost your joy because of doubt, because of frustration? Where are you at? Because your joy is what's going to point others to Jesus. I'm not talking about your happiness. I'm talking about your joy. This morning, I, you know, we're getting... Late, that's fine, you know, we'll deal with it. But what I'm saying is that, you know, Jesus loves you and he died for you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And what that takes is a surrender to him and giving him the keys to your life and saying yes to Christ and, and no to Satan and no to your own control. And so this morning, if you've never done that, if you've never walked into a relationship with Jesus and you know that today's a day of salvation, my encouragement for you is to come up here and pray with one of our prayer team members and be able to walk through that that. that that process with them. They can lead you to the foot of the cross. So we better walk with you and pray with you. So if you've never done that, don't delay it anymore. Don't look at your watch. It don't matter. Figure it out today and get right with God. If there's something else in your life that you need to lay down at the foot of the cross, come leave it right here and don't pick it back up. Let go of it for good and let God fill your heart full of joy. Let him remind you of how good he is. We good? Let me pray for us and we'll go. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. God, I pray that you would fill our hearts full of joy, God, that you would just restore hearts in this place, restore lives in this place. God, that joy would just be the, the centerpiece of who we are as a church, Father, and who we are as people. God, I pray that you would work in this time right now, God, that you would just 
Speak to the person right now, Father, who is holding on to their chair, who is holding on to their life, God, that you would just renew them, God, that you would restore their heart and we teach them how to love you, Father, the way that you were meant to be loved. And God, I pray that you would reveal to them how much you love them. God, we love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.